good to see everybody this uh, Lord's Day morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is King and Head of His Church. Uh, there are a few announcements on the back of your bulletin. Uh, I'll just point you to two. Uh, this evening, there will not be any Q&A club. Um, Lord willing, Q&A club will return next Lord's Day, but just keep that in mind that uh, there will not be Q&A club this evening. Uh, however, there will be uh, the pastor's evening study this, this evening at 6 p.m. Uh, we've been working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, so strongly encourage you to come out to that. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't find a better teacher, so that's me. Uh, but uh, strongly encourage you to come out and, and learn more about um, our standards of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, that's all by way of announcements this morning. Beloved, we have come to worship the living God. Let us prepare our hearts now to do so.
Almighty God, You rule and You reign over all things. You alone are worthy of worship, for You are the one true and living God. There is no God besides You. All things are from You, through You, and unto You. We pray, Father, that our worship would be pleasing in Your sight. As we read the Word, as we sing the Word, and we hear the Word preached, may You change us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Praying that prayer He taught us to pray. Saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. of creation. God created man, male and female. God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and have dominion. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested. God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become Amen and Amen.
Because, beloved, as we come this morning and prepare to confess our sins before God, let us be reminded of what the basis for our salvation is. It's not our good works. It's not even our confessing right now. The basis for our good works is because there was one that had clean hands. There was one that had a pure heart. And that one is Jesus Christ. And He died. He atoned for our sin. And He rose and He ascended into the heavens. And therefore now He lives to intercede for you if you are in Christ here this morning. Because if you, are, if you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, anything you do here, confessing your sin, will not make you right before God because you do not stand in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ here this morning. Unless you need to repent and confess your sin before God. Cling to Jesus Christ in faith. That's what you are called to do. But if you are in Jesus Christ here this morning, beloved, then understand that the reason you can go before God right now and confess your sins that you committed through the week, this day, this hour, is because you have one that has went before you and has made atonement for your sin, has taken your sin upon Himself, and has given you His perfect righteousness applied to you Thus, when we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who made propitiation for our sins, satisfied the wrath of God for us. Let's be reminded, be encouraged of that, beloved, as you go before God right now and confess your sin for Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the great salvation that was accomplished on our behalf. That You sent Your beloved Son to redeem us. To purchase our redemption. And we thank You for the Holy Spirit who has applied the work of salvation to our hearts. We pray, Lord God, that You would give us a zeal for good works. You've created a people that would be zealous for good works. May we find ourselves in that company. Renew in us a desire to be obedient to the Word of God. That we may honor You with our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen.
directions taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, concerning effectual calling. Let us read these together as a body. At the right time, appointed by Him, God effectually calls all those and only those whom He has predestined to life. He calls them by His Word and Spirit out of their natural state of sin and death into grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually with saving understanding of the things of God. He takes away their hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh. He renews their wills by His mighty power, leads them to what is good. And so He effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. But they come to Jesus voluntarily, having been made willing by God's grace. This effectual call is freely made by God and is entirely an act of special grace. It does not depend on anything God foresaw about the person called, who is completely passive. God Himself gives life and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He thereby enables each person to answer his call and to accept the grace he offers and actually gives. Others, not elect, may be called by the ministry of the Word, and the Spirit may work in them in some of the ways he works in the elect. However, they never truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. And of course, people not professing the Christian religion cannot be saved in any other way at all, no matter how hard they try to live a moral life according to their own understanding or try to follow the rules of some other religion. To say they can be saved is extremely harmful and should be denounced. Amen and amen.
to the uh, pulpit of Westminster this morning, uh, Reverend Dr. Al Baker. Uh, you can see in the, one of the last pages of your bulletin there, uh, an extensive biography of Al Baker. Uh, he has been in gospel ministry for over 38 years. He's a graduate of uh, Alabama, uh, RTS, and Whitfield Theological Seminary. Uh, he's planted a number of churches in the United States and has an extensive uh, ministry in foreign missions to Central and South America, Africa, India, and other places as well. Uh, he's a street preacher. He's preached on the streets. Hopefully he'll share some of that. Um, but we're delighted to have him here. It's an honor to have him bring the Word of God to us this morning. Well, it is a pleasure to be here. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Now, the Bible is the infallible and air inspired Word of God. It is our only rule of faith and practice. Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Hear God's Word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let man, beast, herd, or nobles, or flocks, you taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask for the Holy Spirit to be upon us, the preacher and everyone here. We'd see your word, that we'd understand it, that it would reach our hearts, that it would reach our wills, not just our minds. And most of all, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. And Father, if there are any here today who are not yet in Christ Jesus, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now you probably know the story of Jonah. Jonah is preaching about 750 B.C. The Assyrian Empire is at its height of power and prominence. The northern kingdom is under the reign at that time of Jeroboam II. They're living in a time of great prosperity. In fact, land that they had lost to the Assyrians has been gained again in the north of the country. So things are looking really good for the nation of Israel at that time. However, the Assyrians, this wicked nation, was always around the corner, always harassing them, always causing them trouble. And so God goes to Jonah and He says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was right across the Tigris River from Mosul, Iraq. It was on the eastern shore the Tigris River. It was a powerful city. It was a large city. And so God said, Jonah, I want you to go from Joppa and I want you to go the 500 miles up to Nineveh and I'm going to give you a word that I want you to preach to these people. Now we know He did not do it. Which raises the question, why not? We know that the Ninevites or the Assyrians were a wicked people. They were idolatrous. They were liars. They were fornicators. And beyond all of that, they were extremely cruel to those they took captive. In fact, one of their military leaders at the time boasted, when I find someone that we've conquered then I will skin him alive and I'll put his skin on the wall as a warning, as a deterrent to others who might want to rebel against our authority. So you can understand why Jonah is not at all interested in going to the Ninevites. He obviously hates these people, and you can sort of understand why that might be. So what does he do? Chapter 1 tells us he got in a boat, and instead of going in a northeasterly direction up to Nineveh, 500 miles away, he got in a boat, he crossed the Mediterranean Sea to Tarshish, which is on the southwest border or shore of Spain. 2,500 miles away. The short trip of 500 miles, no, he's not going in that direction, he's going in the opposite direction, another 2,500 miles. Now you know what happens. The storm rises up. Finally he admits that he's the culprit. He says, throw me overboard. They don't want to do it, but they finally agree. They throw him overboard. They're all crying out to their gods. Gods, whoever you are, help us. We know that he was swallowed by this great fish. While he's in the belly of the fish for three days, we know that he repents. Chapter 2 is the statement of his repentance, his confession, his grieving over his sin. And God gives him a second chance. God vomits him up on the shore. Now he's got the message. And now he's going to do what God told him the first time. Now let's look at this passage, chapter 3, briefly. Notice first of all in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, you have the mission and the message. The word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. Go to Nineveh, the great city, 
proclaim the proclamation. I'm going to tell you, Jonah obeyed this time. He went to Nineveh, 500-mile trip. A lot longer from where, because of where he was at the time. And according to the Word of God, it was a great city. But then I want you to notice what he does. He goes to the city. He's not in a church. He's on the street preaching. He's going from place to place, open air preaching, and he's preaching. And what we have here, obviously, is just a summary of his message. He did not mince his words. He did not salt pedal the message. He didn't do any of that. Here's what he said in summary. Notice the certainty of it. Yet 40 days, not 45 days, not 38 days, not 365 days, and 40 days, certainly Nineveh, this great city, will be overthrown. The judgment, the righteous judgment of God is going to come down on this city. He's warning them. He's warning them to flee from the just wrath and condemnation they deserve. Then chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, we see their response. And what do they do? They repent. They confess their sin. The, the, the lowest all the way up to the king, and the king kind of takes a little further than necessary. Now, even the animals have to be clothed in sackcloth and ashes. You can see there's a sincerity here. They see their judgment. They know they deserve it. And you'll notice here, it says that they believe God. They believe Adonai. They believe Elohim. They believe Yahweh. They didn't believe any longer in their false gods. They've come to know now that Yahweh is the true living God, the God of the covenant of grace. He's the merciful God. They're calling out to Him and they're repenting. Then in chapter 3, verse 10, of course we read that God heard their prayer. That they repented. And that He relented. It did not give them what they deserve. Now, i got a couple of questions for you. Why in the world would God forgive these people? They were wicked. They were idolatrous. They were cruel tyrants. Why would God forgive these people? And the second question is, how did He do it? Why did God save you? Do you really think you're any better than those people? Why would, why would God save you? Or why would God save me? And by the way, how did He do that? Here's the one thing I want you to get from this message. I know you know this, but this is glorious. Our salvation is a sovereign work of the triune God. Our salvation is a powerful, sovereign work of the triune God. Now let's break that down a little bit. Our salvation. We can go on and on about the salvation we have, right? I was saved from the penalty of sin. You've heard this, right? I was saved from the penalty of sin. 
I am being saved from the power of sin, that's sanctification. I will be saved from the presence of sin and glorification. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is what we now call the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. And the Westminster Confession we read earlier did a beautiful job in explaining all of that. Here it is. God chooses people before the foundation of the world to be His. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself according to His kind intention with a view to the glory and praise of His name. Why were the Ninevites chosen? Were they good people? Did God look down the corridors of the history of time and say, I think that even though these people have been wicked, I think they'll be pretty good, and I think maybe they're going to do some good things, so I think I'll save them. Is that how it works? No. Why did God save you? Did He look and say, Oh, I think that person will be... I think he could really be a good servant of mine. I think maybe he could do some real good in the world. I think I'll save him. No. God chose you, if you're in Jesus, without any idea at all about what you might do or how good you might be. Listen, I know you know this, but let this sink in your heart for a moment. Why are you saved and your next door neighbor's not? Why is it that maybe you lived a a debauched life and your buddy from high school or college lived a debauched life and now you're saved and he's going further and further away into bigger and bigger trouble? Why is that? Are you better than him? No. God is a God of sovereign grace. He chose you. And then the Bible speaks about, and the confession just spoke about as well, of effectual calling. Listen, He calls everybody to be saved. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody gets a call one way or another. That's why we go and preach. But if you responded to that gospel call, maybe you didn't respond the first time you heard it. Maybe not the second time, but somewhere down the road, You were drawn to Jesus and you confessed your sin and you repented of your sin and now you're saved. That's the effectual call. Other people you know have been called and they've never believed. Maybe they've heard the gospel many times, but they've not believed. Now they're responsible to believe, but they don't believe. Why? Because they're not apparently, at least at this juncture, effectually called. And then what does he do? He calls you to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ezekiel prophesied about that in Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel 19, Ezekiel 36. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone and I'll replace it with the heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you so that you might walk after my ordinances to obey them. Listen. The simple fact is, you would have never come to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit worked in you and took out your heart of stone. What I said earlier today is your cobra heart. Your rebellion against God. My rebellion against God. Just the fact 
that you were brought up in the church or you were catechized or baptized, that's good, but that would never save you. God had to do a heart transplant. He had to take out by sheer grace, His own grace, your heart of stone that loved sin and hated God. Now when I preach out in the open air, I see that hatred of God everywhere. Here's, Here's what I mean. If I was to stand at a college campus or a sporting event and begin to preach about Allah or to begin to preach about LeBron James or any character of history, nobody would say anything. Hey, oh, cool, man, whatever. Whatever you believe, man, that's good. But I'm telling you, the moment you stand... And you mention the name of Jesus. People go ballistic. Why is that? Because they hate God, that's why. And a lot of times I'll say to people, now, you, you really hate God. No, no, I don't. I said, well, Romans 8 says you do. And I'll quote Romans 8 to them. God had to take out that rebellious heart. Now when He did that, at that point, you were able to Repent. Until that point, you weren't interested in repentance. You, you didn't believe anything. But God does this supernatural work. It's all a supernatural work of His grace. He quickens you. And now, wait a second, now I get it. Now I humble myself. I repent. Jesus saved me. That's what the Bible calls conversion. Repentance and belief. And when, you're, when, when you have that now, you have... The righteousness of God imputed into your account, right? Justification. Not only are you given the righteousness of Jesus, but you're acquitted. You're acquitted of all the wrong that you've done. It's like you're standing in a court of law. You've been convicted. The judge says, no, 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 it's good. You're good to go. Acquitted. And then you're sanctified. You're brought into into His church. You are, have a positional sanctification, and as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, you, make, you have a progressive sanctification. You have the adoption into the family of God. My oldest son adopted, and he and his wife adopted a little boy from uh, West Africa. They got him when he was two years old. He's now seven. He, he doesn't know this, but he was left on a garbage dump to die. And some sweet African women picked him up, brought him to an orphanage. They actually nursed him. My son and his wife went over when he was two years old to pick him up. He's now a part of our family. My wife says, you know, Malcolm, the moment we saw you come down the escalator at the airport in Birmingham, we said, you're ours. There's no difference whatsoever. He's a different color, but he's ours. He all that my, all that our my son's other children will get in an inheritance, he'll get it too. There's no difference. Adopted into the family of God, and that's what God's done for us. You're heirs of God and your fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. God has redeemed us. We were far away from Him. We were under the, in the, under the control of the evil one. He redeems us by His blood. We were enemies of God. Far away from Him. We were estranged from Him. 
Yet in His fleshly body through death, He reconciles us to Himself so that we now are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Think about that for a second. Think about how you used to be, and now He says through Christ's reconciling death, God's no longer angry with you. You're no longer an enemy of His. He now says, I look at you now and what Jesus Christ has done. You're holy. You're blameless. You're beyond reproach. That just blows me away. I got news for you. If I was to run for public office, there's skeletons in my closet. As there are in everybody's closet. But God says, no, you're, you're above reproach. Isn't that amazing? Not only that, but He has a propitiating salvation. And your pastor mentioned it a moment ago. The wrath of God deservedly was on you and me. But Christ satisfied that judgment. When He was on the cross, He says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? You see, there was that perfect union for eternity between the three persons of the Godhead. But at that particular time, Jesus took our sins in His body on the cross. And the wrath of God was poured out of Him. And Jesus is looking for some comfort from His Father. As R.C. Sproul says, His Father was silent. No answer. Can you imagine that separated from His Father for those hours while He's on the cross? But that's what it took to satisfy God's justice and wrath. And then expiation. He takes your sins away as far as the east is from the west. As the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. It's amazing! Your salvation is a sovereign work of God. The triune God. Genesis, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. God the Father. In Him, He's predestined us to adoption as sons. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before Him. That's the praise to the praise of the glory of the grace of God the Father. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Watch this. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, to the praise of the glory of His grace, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, in Him we were sealed into the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit involved in our salvation. Now, when I became a Christian in 1972, I began to talk to my friends. I found out later that the other guys on the baseball team said, whatever you do, don't get caught alone with Baker in the batting cages. He's going to tell you about Jesus. Well, I had a friend from high school, Ronnie. Ronnie and I, Ronnie went, uh, was dating a girl and named Denise. I was dating Winnie. We decided that we were going to go to the Alabama-Georgia game and, uh, in Athens. And so we drove over on a Friday night, Friday afternoon, and we spent the night somewhere in Atlanta with friends of Ronnie's father. So Ronnie and I are in one bedroom, and I vividly remember sharing Jesus with him. And he called on the name of the Lord to save him. Now, Ronnie went on. We've been friends for years. Ronnie went on 
to take over his father's business and grow it in an exponential fashion. He became very wealthy running his father's business. And he was an elder at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. Tremendous, tremendous guy. And every December, when I was not traveling, I would teach a Sunday school class at Briarwood, a couple hundred people in a Sunday school class. And one time about six years or so ago, Winnie said, you know, something's not right with Brian. He doesn't look good. I said, what? I said, yeah, I don't know. I can't put my finger out of it. He, he's, he's acting strangely. I said, okay. Three months later, he goes in for an examination, a brain scan. He's got an inoperable brain tumor. The doctor said, who was an elder at Briarwood as well, they said, Ronnie, you have at most two years to live. So, so Ronnie went to some special treatment that uh, Laura Ingram, by the way, um, told him about. They were good friends because she, was, she would come and speak at the Alabama Policy Institute thing. And we actually went to, just as a sideline, Wendy and I went to a, a football game with uh, Laura one time. She's a big Alabama fan. She's from Connecticut. I don't know how that happened, but she is. Anyway, so she told uh, Ronnie about the special treatment. He went for it. It seemed to be working, and it was in India, actually. I remember on Memorial Day, I was coming back from preaching uh, an installation service, and uh, Ronnie called and said, Hey, why don't you all come to, uh, to Shoal Creek, and we'll have lunch together today. I said, That'd be great. So we go there Memorial Day afternoon, and Ronnie looked great. He looked really good. I said, wow, you know, maybe God's going to heal him from all this. And, but then uh, about two months later in August, I was preaching somewhere in Birmingham. I came home and his wife called and said, Ronnie's near the end. If you want to see him, you need to come today. So I drove over to his house in Shoal Creek and I went in and he was in hospice care. I said, Alan, that's my middle son, I said, who was very close to Ronnie, why don't you join me? First he goes, I don't think I can see Ronnie in that position. I said, no, come on. So he did. So we walk in, he's in a coma, a few people around, his wife had actually gone out for a little while. And you know what you've heard, that the last thing that people have is their hearing. They can still hear. So I, and, uh, I said, Ronnie, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all, all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised and perishable. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable will put on the imperishable, and mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? The sting of sin is death, the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. I'm quoting this to Ron. He's in a coma. He opens his eyes. And his hands come up off the bed like this. Now I told you. He was a Presbyterian elder, so his hands did not go over his head. <laughs> the next day he dies and he's with Jesus. This is the truth. God gives you salvation. You don't deserve it.
That's what's going to happen to you when you die. It's a matter of time, right? Unless Jesus comes back first. You're going to die, I'm going to die. But if you're in Jesus, you'll be with Him forever. Let me close with this. Think about the Ephesians for a moment. I've quoted a lot from Ephesians 1. These were wicked people, right? These were, these were idolaters. These were people who worshipped the false goddess Diana. They had this big, big temple in, uh, in Ephesus that was about 300 feet long and about 150 feet wide, and they had 60 columns that are 60 feet high. Many of them were gilded with gold and silver. And people would come from far and wide, and they'd buy these silver trinkets of Diana, and they'd worship this false goddess. Paul comes in there and begins to preach the gospel. The whole place is turned upside down. In fact, there's so many people becoming Christians that the silversmiths are losing business and the Chamber of Commerce is upset because nobody's coming to, to, you know, to, to this junket any longer. Riots break out. And later on, while Paul's in prison, he's writing back to the Ephesians. You know these people used to be wicked. Here's what he says. This was true of you. This was true of me. He says... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now listen, if you come if, if you come across an accident on the highway and you see some people working, some, some medics working on the body, you say, ah, oh, he's apparently still alive. There's still hope. There's still hope. But when they have that covering over the head, you say, there is no hope, it's over. What Paul is reminding these Ephesians of is this. You were dead. It was hopeless. There's nothing you could have done. You were dead in your sins. You knew exactly what you're doing and you walked away from it. Your trespasses, you drifted. You weren't really sure what's going on, but you drifted. You were dead. You had no hope at all. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You were just doing what everybody else does. You're just going along with the stream. Just kind of going along, whatever's going, whatever people like. Walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. What's that mean? Paul's reminding them, you were under the control of the devil. The devil had blinded your mind so you could not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's your situation. My dear friends, you may not have been possessed by demons, but you certainly were oppressed by them and you certainly were misled by them. That's what we see in our culture everywhere. That's how you were. You were were hopeless. You were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit. That's now working among the sons of disobedience. You see people out in the world who are disobedient and godless and debauched. That was what you were like. And you said, no, 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 I wasn't that bad. By God's standards you were. He goes on to say that you were living according to the lusts of the flesh. We know what that is. You were indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath just like everybody else. That means you were creative. Indulging comes from the Greek word where we get the word poem. Later on he says you are his workmanship. Same Greek word. They were indulging themselves and you were too. You had your own brand. You had your own style. Your signature way of sinning. 
Maybe you weren't indulging the desires of the flesh, but you certainly were indulging the desires of the mind. Oh, I got it all figured out. This Bible's not true. I'll go after this philosophy. I'll go after this religion here. I know what's true. That's how you were. Then he goes on to say, because of that, you were children of wrath. The judgment of God was upon you. I often say to people, if you're not going to repent, if you're not going to repent and believe the gospel, the best thing for you to do is to die at about age 10. Because the longer you live, you're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who rendered every man according to his deeds. Listen, think about it like this. Paul says in Romans 2, Do you not know the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? There's a sense in which every person getting up every morning says, I've got a nice home. I should repent. I should come to Jesus. I've got a nice job. I have a nice car to drive. I should repent. I should come to Jesus. I have a lot of friends. I can go on nice trips. I should repent and believe on Jesus. But that's, is that what they do? No. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. And so were you until God changed your heart. So Paul is giving this very negative picture of what these Ephesian people were like. He paints it very vividly. And then, you know, the next words are the most wonderful, glorious words in all of the Bible. In the English Bible, is two words. After laying all this out, he says, But God. But God changes everything. Being rich in mercy. Get that? Rich in mercy. He's not a miser. Rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Do you understand that? Not just in the mind, but in the heart. God really loves you. Wait a second. How about how about my sin? How about all that stuff I, I had in my mind, you know, like yesterday? Yeah, you got to deal with that. Sure, you got to repent. That's why we had church. That's why we had repentance uh, confession earlier. The great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, for our grace you've been saved through faith, and He raised us up with Him. And I love this. Paul. Sometimes Paul just goes off. He's just, you know, he's dictating his letters, right? So he just goes off into the into the heavenlies, just giving praise to God. For by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in order that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, he's heaping one glorious phrase on top of another. He's just caught up in the glory of it all. And that's true of you if you're in Christ. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you should certainly bow in reverence. Listen. There should never be, there should never be a proud Calvinist. Because we understand what we were like. And we know it's all of God's grace. And what this also means is one of our obligations. We're under obligation to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why? Because we once were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. 
You know, evangelism is not simply technique. It's really a heart. It's a heart issue. Listen, when you really love God, when you really see what He's done for you, you can't help it. You just gotta you gotta say something. Now we all get cold, I do. When I get cold hearted, I go back through Ephesians two, and man, I'm warmed up by the time I finish it. Think about people you know. You pray for them and you ask God to give you an open door and just tell them what you know. But one last thing. It's always possible that maybe you've been brought up in the church and you know you're not right with God. It may be that you're enslaved to secret sins and you can't seem to break it. It might be that you're filled with guilt. You know, guilt comes from disobeying God's law. But shame comes from, wait a second, why, am I, why do I do that? Why do I act that way? I'm ashamed of what I do. You were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He reconciles you to Himself in His fleshly body through death, that He might present you before Him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Listen, if that's you... You say, you know, I don't think I'm really a Christian. Today, my friend, is the day of salvation. You don't have to follow me in a prayer. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk forward. Right there where you are, you say, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you might be saying, well, I'm not sure about that. I need to think about it. No, Paul says today is the day of salvation. Well, I'm not sure about all this. Yeah, maybe 80% sure. No, Paul says today is the day of salvation. I need to go home and talk to my wife or kids or whatever. No, Paul says today is the day of salvation. Come today. And when you do, you will know your salvation is a sovereign work of Almighty God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for this church and how it stood faithful to Your Word for many, many years now. And Lord, I pray that that we would leave here awed, amazed at Your grace. Lord, we all know these things. I'm sure of that. This is a church that's very very committed to biblical doctrines. We all know these things. But Lord, drive them deeply into our hearts where it's not merely an academic or intellectual exercise, but that it affects our heart, our will, everything we do. That we live with a sense of profound gratitude and humility before you and before others. And Lord, would you indeed draw anybody here today who says, I don't think I'm a Christian. Come, come right now and say, Jesus... Be merciful to me, a sinner, and He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will give you a new heart so that you can truly repent and believe the Gospel. Father, hear our prayer and make it in Jesus' name. Amen.
benediction fall from heaven upon believing hearts. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen.